Today, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to the fourth series of This Week in Startups Australia. In this special episode, episode zero, if you will, we will be speaking to two startups making gadgets both large and small. First, Twista speaks to the co-founders of Your3D, who turned a clever solution to their problems into a hugely disruptive bit of hardware. Then we speak to Simon Vincent, founder of Newton Labs. Simon turned a hackathon win into a new technology that will save the mining industry hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Hardware is hard. So what does it take to succeed? Find out in this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, and API Days Australia, Australia's largest conference dedicated to the business and technology of APIs. Back in June of 2015, I got an email from Murray Herbs. He's the managing director of Fishburner. He's been on the show a couple of times. He told me that there was this new startup. He called it Your3D. And I had to just check it out because, and I'll quote, they have a pretty awesome 3D scanning device that Murray knew, given my background in 3D, he knew I would be interested in it. So the next day I met the founders, got a demo of their 3D scanner. It's a very clever bit of kit because it uses the brains inside a smartphone. And these days that is a lot of brains. And it uses those brains to handle all the heavy lifting. So all their device has to do is basically just scan an object with a laser beam. But it's that plus a lot of very clever maths that allows them to scan an object down to 100 micron resolution. And to give you a sense of comparison here, that kind of precision is normally associated with 3D scanners that cost tens of thousands of dollars. So when your 3D hit Kickstarter back in October, well, it pretty much went nuts because they had a scanner that costs a few hundred dollars, and it rapidly became one of the most successful Kickstarters to ever launch in Australia. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome to Twista your 3D's three co-founders, Rahul Kodori, Asa Khan, and Richard Burrs, to This Week in Startups Australia. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. How did this whole crazy scheme get started? Um, well, what happened was uh, we were working on a uh, a project previously where we had to uh, build a concentrated photovoltaic uh, device so that basically tracks the sun it uh, focuses the light to a very precise point and then turns it into electricity and hot water and what happened was um, uh, it requires something called a parabolic dish it's right. like a giant magnifying glass you can think of it like that um, so we got that manufactured uh, it has to be done very precisely and what happened was uh, when we got our part, we assembled our uh, system and it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And uh, after a lot of fiddling around, uh, what we found out was that the dish essentially wasn't made to our specification. Now, that wasn't too much of a problem. Mm -hmm. We could compensate for that, but we needed to know exactly how much it had deflected from its... So you actually needed to scan the dish to we find to out how the bad dish. the dish was. Exactly. So. Uh, the reason for that is normally if you have something that's, you know, let's say out of spec or broken or whatever, right. you can measure with a ruler or right. calipers, but it's an organic surface. You can't use any normal device to measure it. You have to scan it. Right. And so... Um, okay, so you need to scan this, but how did this, does this end up, did you then create your own scanner to scan it with? 
Yeah, so so, so we we obviously we, we had to scan it. Right. So we went out to buy a three D scanner like anybody would. Okay. So we we went out to buy a three D scanner. The only one that was capable of scanning a dish to our specifications cost twenty thousand dollars. Right. And that didn't include software. Right. So obviously, being two guys in a garage, we 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 thought, hold on a minute, this doesn't sound right. Um, it's uh, I mean, something <laughs> okay. something that does a very simple thing, which is to convert a physical object to a 3D model in high precision shouldn't cost that much because it seems like a very simple thing to do. I, I mean, I love how you just say it's really simple. Uh, yeah, but I guess yeah. maybe not for everyone. Well, when you, when you look deeper, you find out that it's expensive because there's not many people who make it. Right, okay. Uh, and it was made before this era of the internet where right. manufacturers would use it occasionally to test parts. So not being able to afford it, we had to build our own. So we looked online. We okay. we went through a bunch of you know projects that people were working on something in a similar landscape, right? Um, computer vision and uh, things uh, things like that, and then uh, we we thought, hold on a minute, we're pretty good at programming here. What if we get a simple camera, right? And we program it in such a way that we can actually measure our own dish, and then on the very first day that we built our first prototype, three D printed prototype, obviously, um, the result that we got was better then the sample scan that the shop, which gave us a $20,000 quote. And that blew our minds. The very so first already scan- already you were doing better. Already we were doing better. Um, and, then, and then long story short, along came Kickstarter. Right. Along came this explosion of 3D printing projects. Right. And then uh, I guess a light bulb went off in the head saying, who is most likely to buy something that we're making? Someone who already owns a MakerBot. Someone who already owns a MakerBot because the, the, the most obvious problem when you own a 3D printer is you have to have a 3D file. Right. Where are you going to get that 3D file? Right. That's where a 3D scanner comes in. Okay, so you've got this idea. You've got this great prototype. You think there's a market. Do you actually know? I mean, obviously, given the response to your Kickstarter, you've, in a sense, justified a market. But do you have an idea now? How many 3D printers are out there in the world? I mean, I know you can go down to Harvey Norman and they'll try to sell you one. How many are there out there? Are there enough to really justify a product like this? Um, so, so this is how I, I explain this. Um, we are not targeting 3D printing customers, right. particularly. It was kind of like a go-to-market launch, uh, and hence the Kickstarter project, because we could, we knew there was a community there that would appreciate something like this. Right. But in in the in the long term or even the medium term, it's not 3D printers that we're targeting. We don't see it as an accessory for 3D printing alone, uh, because there's so much more that a 3D scanner can do. Um, but just go back to your question about how let's just if if we were to talk just about 3D printers, uh, uh, there's different reports, industry reports, they change every year, every six months. Mm. Um, last time I uh, I read one, it said that in by 2020, 3D printing will be at least a um, uh, they'll be shipping at least 30 million printers every year. Every year, okay. Um, which is which is a significant number. Um, now. Will all these 30, uh, 30 million printers end up in people's homes? Probably not. Most likely it'll be used for prototyping and high-end high manufacturing. Mm. Um, but yeah, so we don't see it just as an accessory for a 3D printer. Uh, there's many, many more use cases for a 3D scanner. And I, yeah. yeah, I mean, what are a couple of those um, so, so one very uh, good example is uh, when you have an engineer uh, or a designer who works on CAD models, mm. Um, one of the things that they first do is they they design something on the computer mm -hmm. and they 3D print it mm -hmm. or they prototype in other ways. Um, they could sculpt it out of clay. 
Now you need to get that clay model back into your computer so that you can compare it against your 3D files. Oh, so it's really right. around a feedback process. I mean, yes. it makes the process agile. Completing the loop. So right. we're completing the design loop. So you start with an idea, you somehow end up with a physical product, but yeah. that physical product has to end up back into the computer. And when you put it like that, it actually sounds like it's the missing component, right? It's like, it's one of those things you don't realize, oh yeah, actually we kind of need that to close the loop until you've actually closed the loop and go, okay, wait, there's this whole process of fabrication and then observing the results mm. of that fabrication. Yeah. And and turns out that that's, pretty, that's a very huge market because if you look around, pretty much everything that's man-made was designed by someone. Yeah. And it has three dimensions. There, there needs to be a simpler way to measure them because as, as manufacturing is getting better, or shapes are getting more organic. In, All right, yeah. Where did you get, I guess, the fundamental insight around using a smartphone to handle all the heavy lifting rather than building your own computer into the scanner to do that? Well, well 3D scanning um, essentially has three components. Uh, you have to have some kind of optics so a camera, basically. Right. Uh, you need to have some computing power. Yes. Uh, obviously, to process a lot of data, uh, and you have to have some system which projects a line or a pattern. They're they're different approaches, and so so you need those three components. And it turns out that two of those, the optics and the computing power, is in a smartphone. Right. Right. So two and out of three in one device. Were they? If if I handed you a first model iPhone with the shit crappy camera, yeah. you know, and, and, and slow processor, would that have had enough grunt in it to do this? Uh, no. So we're talking about more recent models. Yes, So absolutely. this is something that's really been enabled by the smartphone race between Google and Apple, right? In some now. ways. By recent, it, it really will work with, you know, anything up to like three or four years old. So yeah. that's still quite a significant amount of phones that it can cover. Okay. Uh, we actually did our test with iPhone 5s, which are still... <laughs> almost four years old almost now. Almost four years yeah. old now. So, um, my God, it's hard to think about it, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They are. So absolutely. we, we right. still we still use that. So, um, but uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's really been um, not just the, the 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 war in terms of computing power and just megahertz, uh, but just even camera quality. The right. fact that they love oh, we have such a you know excellent camera. Yeah. Uh, the optics quality of the lenses, the sensors, all of that is really sort of helping us. Because year on year, the, the, those things are getting better. Because right. yeah. obviously, uh, device manufacturers want better cameras in their devices. So more customers will take pictures. So the, the floor for the capacity to be able to do what you're doing is constantly dropping then because there's more mm -hmm. and more devices yeah, that are coming yeah, out yeah. like that. Okay, so you, you have this moment of realization and you know that you're going to start to turn it into a product and when we come back, I'll ask you about what it actually took to get you to take the plunge. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I just want to welcome back Braintree Payments as a sponsor for the fourth series. Braintree is code for easy online payments. Developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever's next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com twista. 
And we're back with Asfan, Rahul, and Richard, the three co-founders of Yora3D. Now, you're at this point, you figured out that you can do this, that there's a market for this. When do you decide to actually go, okay, we want to start a hardware company, which by the way, most people who have done hardware companies, myself included, would go, oh my God, don't ever do this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What sort of tipped the balance for you around making a business out of it rather than just making a really cool project out of it? Um, it's, it's hard to um, pinpoint a particular incident or a situation where a startup really starts because it's such an organic process. Um, I think uh, for us, um, it was that very day, very day that I mentioned uh, where we did our first scan mm. and we, we, we got a result that was better than what was out there. I mean, when you, when you, have, an, when you have an event where you, 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 have, you have a result in front of you where, which is better than $20,000 equipment, right. uh, I don't think you need to convince yourself very hard to pursue that. Um, and well, you wouldn't necessarily mm. know how many of those they're selling. I mean, there's a, there are a number of questions that you might ask, which we've already addressed around the market. And I, I mean, I do think that the answer that a $200 device or $300 device grows the market in ways that $20,000 yes. device yeah. simply yeah. simply cannot. All right. So now you're, you're, you've decided to take the plunge and now you have to start thinking about the market and the product. So what happens at that point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess where I came into the picture, it was probably going for about three months. Right. Um, they'd done some work. I was the first one to see it externally from the project at this point. What did you think when you first saw this crazy thing that these um, kids had hacked up? I will say the design probably wasn't what it is today. It was um, a very small piece 3D, pr 3D printed part which um, spread apart with the phone on one end and the laser on the other end. Right. It was, I guess, as simple as you could make a 3D right. scanner at that point. Um, I guess that's when it wasn't thinking about the design or making a product. At that point, it wasn't making a product that would, you know, be a 3D scanner no, for everybody. It was making a prototype. You know, it was making, you know, making a product that was just kind of a vision at that point to scan on the parabolic dish. And I was thinking to myself and met with them you know, a bunch of times, thinking this was like an awesome piece of kit. And I was very heavy on the idea of going to Kickstarter, thinking, you know, it would be a great way to launch a product because... Now, now you gentlemen, had it crossed your mind to Kickstarter this? Um, we, I mean, we, did you have to talk them into it? I believe so, yeah. yeah <laughs> there was a little bit. It was... Um, we, we sort of knew about it, but uh, yeah, it was, you know, we've... Three of us know each other for quite a while, right? And uh, but yeah, Richard. It's, it's actually interesting. The yeah. decision to go on Kickstarter was basically one to two, so it was one versus two. I was against it, and these two were for it. We, oh, we, okay, that one yeah. did too. Yeah. Oh, that's very hard in a small company. Yes, as well. it's very hard. But but having so, done, they, wait wait, yeah. did they just wear you down? <laughs> um, no, I mean, they, but there's an important lesson here because other founders will be in exactly the same position. How did how did did you come around? Did they wear you down? Did you go to your room and slam the door? I mean, how did that? I'd work? like to think that I had a choice. Uh, <laughs> in, okay. Uh, um, I think um, I think obviously the, the most successful founders are the ones who worked with each other for a long time. Yes. Um, I, I think there's common friendship here that's more than ten years old. So, um, Richard would probably speak more about this, but he's he he knew about Kickstarter for for a while. Yeah. Um, uh, when we, I think we we sat down together and we looked at just that: how many three D printing projects are there? Right. And we listed them all, and there were well over forty. Mm. Um, and they all had collectively more than ten thousand bags backers. Mm. Mm. Um, and um, 
I think, and this is this goes back to my point, which is that having done the Kickstarter campaign, the hypothesis that we form now is that if you are a young startup in Sydney mm. or anywhere else in the world, mm. and you are making a hardware product that mm. is consumer focused, mm. the easiest route to product market fit mm. is Kickstarter. Yes, yeah. because it gives you a global audience right yeah. away. Yeah, I, exactly. And it's just like getting that capital to start is like, yeah. yeah, it's just an uphill battle. You know, if you can get early customers on your side where you're not having to sell equity for it, and, it's, and um, let me it's a just great ask, trade. You had this amazingly successful Kickstarter campaign. I haven't talked any numbers, but how much did you raise during the Kickstarter campaign? Uh, in Aussie dollars, about 850 so that's very good almost a million dollars and how many customers do you have so we have uh, on kickstarter we had 2134 right. uh, and after that we've pretty much doubled our customer base oh which so is, you're, st you're still selling uh yeah so we we gave it a break and then we started taking pre-orders right. um the, the it was a hard decision but we looked at what our manufacturing capacity was mm -hmm. and it turned out that it was something that we could achieve yeah well 5000 um, is a number that china likes a lot anyway yes. so if you and your product costs come down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no 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 the magic numbers in 5000 is one of those numbers so if you've yes. got that yeah. in your order book yeah. that's good here your prices yeah. will fall down okay all right so richard you're talking them into kickstarter does this now mean that you have to start thinking around product market fit in a way that you weren't when you were just thinking about scanning a parabolic dish to figure out what was going on. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of design iterations that happened from that. So the design that we sold on Kickstarter is actually prototype number seven. Right. Um, so between the point of thinking Kickstarter is a great idea, there was probably still another 12 months worth of design mm -hmm. that went into, mm -hmm. you know, refining it and making it into a consumer product. Because right. I believe even when we first met you, we brought it on a tripod and, you know, no, no, had no, cables had lots, I don't everywhere. Know, it, it wasn't on the tripod. There were cables everywhere. And I okay. remember that. It was very cute because I took pictures and tweeted yeah. them. There were cables and it was okay. going up to so the So you actually box. got one of the CNC units yeah, back yeah. then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you had, I think, just gotten them. Okay, we yeah. must have been excited because before that, we were showing everybody it was on a tripod and, you know, it was a bit of perspex that had been, you know, cut to what we wanted with some 3D printed components. Um, and then with a lot of design. So it wasn't... I guess, focused on the Kickstarter at that point. It was just making a product which would be, you know, something that could be consumer or depending if it could go into different businesses, it can go into right. businesses, but making the product and making the best product we could. Okay. We're going to sort of flip this around a little bit because we're down to about the last three, four minutes here. I want to talk about where you see this going because you're, you're in a product production cycle, a manufacturing cycle. So the first question I'm going to ask is what are you learning about both your company and your product from being in a manufacturing cycle? Um, I think the immediate lesson is that we're pretty lucky because we are not one of those early startups that are doing hardware on crowdfunding platforms. So what that means is that when we went to Shenzhen, mm. there was already an ecosystem that understood what a crowdfunded project needs. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. there's been a yeah. whole bunch of them coming through, yes. So, so my point is that it's not as hard as it may seem. Yes. Uh, which is thanks to all the previous projects that came up. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, in terms of being in the middle of manufacturing cycle, uh, deadlines aren't the most important thing. Right. Uh, we, we have a pretty um, uh, good rule. We, we work on a 3-3-3 rule, which is what we're going to do in the next three days, what does the next three weeks look like, right. and what does, it, what does it look like in the next three months. Okay. Turns out in the next three months, we'll be shipping our first beta backers, yeah. which means three, the three weeks and the three days are very important. Okay. So that's the rolling cycle that we work on. Nice. All right. So what are you learning, I think, about uh, about what it takes to ship? Um, in terms of, 
I think I think sometimes one of the problems with with, with hardware startups is obviously hardware is hard. That's a very common yeah. saying. Um, and and one of the, the 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 problems there is a lot of times people will three D print something or they may um, draw something up or whatever it is, and then and they don't understand how that scales right. to how you let's say injection molded parts, your CNC machine apart. So, so designed for manufacturing. Designed for manufacturing. One of the things that uh, you know our first basically four prototypes were three D printed. After that, we then CNC machined as quickly as possible yeah. uh, because you very easily start to learn the limitations of what it can and can't do. Um, and so that's something that, um, in some ways, doesn't affect us too much now because we've done that hard work before Kickstarter. Mm. Uh, but it's something that we would definitely recommend. Well, things will still fall over when you go into mass production because that's yeah. what happens. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay. So you're in this intense learning cycle now. You're going to come out. You're going to have a shipping product. Are you, A, worried about competitors coming in? I mean, I've been seeing things that are sort of similar to this and and how do you evolve your 3d in the future to sort of stay ahead of that curve of other competitors uh, well one we don't really think in terms of competitors because i think i think it's a uh, if you're if you're a startup you should be pretty self-centered mm -hmm. you should focus on your product and mm -hmm. what it is that you're trying to achieve mm -hmm. um uh, worrying about competitors in some ways is not something that we spend much time on okay. um only because the future is bright and it's long so there's as long as you keep innovating, you'll do well. Okay. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, what I think, I think it's a very good um, uh, stage that we're in because there's this new market that's going to hit us soon. It's called VR. Uh, in in VR, for example, uh, there's obviously a lot of hype these days compared to reality. But pretty soon, reality will catch up with the hype. Um, one of the things that we see ourselves is that in a VR environment, especially in games, you need 3D models. Lots and lots and lots exactly. of original 3D models. So Eora, for example, you could with the Eora 3D scanner, you could scan something and stream it straight into a VR environment. So that's one of many things that we're thinking about. Um, and, and, uh, and that's from a product point of view. From a business point of view, uh, I, uh, we're often told the number one thing that kills businesses, hardware businesses, is when, you de when they don't get distribution right. Right. Um, so we, we're working very hard on that to make sure that we, we get our distribution right, which means and we can... Are you going to be working with distribution partners? Are you going to try to handle um, that yourself? We, we can't announce it just yet, but we've actually uh, bagged one of the biggest brands in the world to exclusively sell our product. Um, so it's, Fair uh, enough. Yeah. It's, uh, come June, we'll probably announce that. Okay. Uh, we did a demo for them, and they were blown out of their minds, and they thought that, that the... That the fact that that the showcase that the technology that we're showcasing on what's possible on a phone right. is something that they want to be associated with, um, so that'll be interesting. June, gee, that's when the GDC happens. Uh, I can't imagine. No, no, no. We won't make any predictions here about anything like that. All right, <laughs> Asfan, Rahul, Richard, congratulations, good luck, and thank you very much for being on this week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I am really pleased to introduce Twista's newest sponsor, API Days Australia. API Days is a world-class conference bringing business leaders, entrepreneurs, and technologists together to collaborate around building the business models of the 21st century, business models built from APIs. 
API Days is unique because it covers both the why and the how of digital business. One track focuses on business strategies, while the other track focuses on technologies and implementations. APIs are the future for every business that wants to innovate, grow, and compete in the connected century, and API Days is the event where you can learn how. At Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre on March 1st and 2nd, find out more at au.apidays.io slash twista. If you folks go back and listen to the second episode of this series, which is the Perth special, I was speaking to Justin Straharsky, and he mentioned that one of the unearthed startups was a startup that actually was saving mining companies huge amounts of money because they could tell when large rocks made it into the mining equipment. And when that happens, the line shuts down. You have to send a guy out with a crowbar. I mean, you can't really get much more hands-on than that. And in an industry that is fantastically as automated and cost-efficient as Australian resource extraction is, doesn't make sense. Simon Vincent is the founder and CEO of Newton Labs, which is the company that Justin was talking about in that conversation. Simon, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, Pleasure to be here. So what does Newton Labs do? Well, you've kind of touched on it. Um, Very top level, we're quite simply just a tech startup. Uh, We've developed some fancy sensors uh, suitable for the mining industry to identify problems exactly as you've sort of alluded to, looking at uh, big rocks before they cause trouble for the mining industry. So these are essentially really, really durable accelerometers? That's right. If you can imagine uh, sort of 45 degree heat, uh, huge amounts of dust and sunlight for a good nine months of the year, the equipment that we're developing um, must be rugged and durable enough. So it's pretty military grade. And so you're getting a stream of data off this accelerometer. And how do you then know, oh, there's a big rock? that's been tossed into the truck or on whatever piece of equipment. How, do you have to, are you doing real-time analysis on that? Yeah, it's the eventual goal will be a real-time system that analyzes the certain vibrations uh, and patterns from uh, mining trucks. Right. Uh, what that basically means is big rocks will have a certain signature about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we collect enough uh, information and data from the site, it will be able to say, hey, we believe to some sort of confidence you have a oversized rock in here. Um, and then we will alert the operators or, or the site shifts or whoever needs to know and then they can act on it. Now, how much time, money, manpower is an average mine losing to this problem right now? It's a big one, actually. It's funny, mining, uh, especially the, the sort of larger scale ones, run 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right. So what you have is a situation where small problems, when um, sort of extrapolated on that time scale, become tens and tens, even hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's very dependent site to site. Some have better practices and processes for handling it. Right. Um, others are less fortunate. Um, and are quite constrained by it. It, it really can slow down uh, operations by a matter of uh, at least half an hour to a couple of hours. Uh, and then you've got certain issues around trucks that queue up yes. um, because everything's down. Yeah. Um, you've got the safety, as you said, someone unfortunately has to go out there and try and break it apart. <laughs> yep. Very manual and very intensive. Yeah. Um, and in today's environment and market, um, it's these types of disruptive uh, events that are becoming under the microscope. And so everyone's looking at them. Well, we, we just had Rio Tinto, you know, 
premiering their totally, or not quite totally automated, but their roughly completely automated mind somewhere in the Pilbara, right? Mm -hmm. The trucks are automated, the trains are automated, and in a system like that, a large rock would basically wreck all of that automation. It would be an exception that that automation can't deal with, right? That's that's exactly right. So uh, at the moment, we're trying to enable operators to sort of uh, become better at their work by alerting them that they are oversized so that they can make certain uh, actions. But mm. moving forward, as, as you sort of said, Rio and the big guys are doing autonomous. So they're trying to remove the, uh, the manual work so that things run on robotics. But the problem is, if you don't know that there's a big rock or, or uh, some sort of event happening, then uh, essentially you can disrupt the whole chain of command. Um, so this sensor or widget could be useful. How did you get this idea? Were you just sort of looking at something one day and went, wait a minute, we can use an accelerometer for this? Not quite that simple. So there was an event through Unearth last year. Right. Um, so Justin and, and Zane, the two directors, uh, essentially it's an open innovation event mm -hmm. where over 150 entrepreneurs, developers, designers come together over a 54-hour uh, weekend. So a hackathon. A hackathon, exactly. Right. Um, and the hackathon was premised around resources and mining. So the big companies like Rio, BHP, Goldfields, and a host of others presented probably about 15 industry Problems. problems. Oh, so beautiful. So they were really driving this. This is a it's their problems. It, it, it's Brilliant. not something we thought of. It, right. it came from industry. Right. Which uh, for any uh, aspiring entrepreneur out there, it, this is market validation 101. They've come to us with the problem. They're your customers. If you fix the problem, they will sign up. That's exactly it. Right. So uh, at the start of the weekend, they said big rocks are hugely disruptive. Um, this is what's happening. This Why is the cost. Why didn't you name the company Big Rocks? I mean, I love Newton Labs, but seriously, Big Rocks. Big Rocks. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we wanted good vibrations and a few other oh, names, yeah. but uh, too, right? they've all been taken. And yeah. Uh, yeah, my colleague, Michael, is a big fan of uh, sort of honoring those uh, before him. And obviously, Tesla's taken and Newton with his oh, falling uh, gravity and, and yeah. things like that was quite uh, applicable. So we're fortunate enough to yeah. resemble his uh, vision, yeah. <laughs> all right, so you're at this hackathon. You've got all these folks presenting their problems. So someone said, actually, Big Rock's are a problem. How did you end up developing your way to a solution for that? So predominantly on the Friday night, there's quite a few mining engineers and geologists uh, and the like floating around. So we sat down with a couple and we said, okay, so tell us about what other solutions have been out there or what have you seen that's been trying to work in different projects? Mm -hmm. It was all around photo analysis or video systems. So computer vision. Computer vision, right. exactly. Which is um, hard. Which is very hard. Yeah. Um, many, many years and countless amounts of money and energy have been put into these projects with very minimal results or accuracy, simply because, again, you've got so much dust. Um, our camera systems with their processing and data and things like that, it's hard to sort of transfer um, it's hard for a human to tell if there's a big rock and a big pile of stuff. I mean, it, it, getting a computer to do it is, all, is a bigger ask than that. Massively, exactly yeah. right. Um, and so we had a look at some of the footage and, and some of the vision of it. Um, and then the colleagues and I started to realize that, hang on, as these big rocks are getting loaded into the trucks, we're, we're witnessing the trucks move and sort of shake in a, in a much more sort of stronger fashion. Right. So we thought, well, hypothesis number one is, could you use some sort of accelerometer to detect if there was a, a larger rock as opposed to smaller on the back of a truck? Right. Um, and so that was the hypothesis. And so Friday night, that's the what we were going to start testing. Um, 
And this is where it gets funny because first thing Saturday morning, we've only got maybe 48 hours to actually pull together something to present to a whole panel of judges. No. Um, and so the, the genius idea was to borrow my colleague's daughter's Tonka toy, mm-hmm. uh, strap that on a uh, simple fitness ball to give it some sort of suspension. God, this is brilliant. And then, uh, and then yeah, slap an iPhone on the side yep. with the onboard accelerometer and, and do some clever algorithms and development. And uh, sure enough, there we were Sunday afternoon in front of a whole <laughs> bunch of a steam with yeah. a Tonka toy, yeah. uh, with a whole bunch of uh, sort of tape and things like that attached to it. It's how you know it's a and prototype. The, it's got tape on it. It is the cliche small-scale pro- prototype. Right. Uh, and then what we did was just start, started to pour rocks in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a live sort of, uh, I guess, a gauge of what was going into the back and whether or not it believed it was oversized or not. And right. so we poured largely just fines and small pebbles and, mm-hmm. and it registered that everything was fine. And then we introduced a larger rock and then sure enough, it picked up and, yeah. and that was our real-time alert. Did you win the uh, hackathon? We did. We are, uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not sort of saying we did too well, but we had sort of a funny standing ovation. And um, luckily for us, it was towards the end. So it was obviously still in the judge's mind. Um, but yeah, it was just more the out the box thinking. And that was a lot of the feedback that we had predominantly from the mining uh, community was, wow, we, we did not think... Uh, and it's it's true. You, you wouldn't think and that yet, people when you look at it, it makes total sense. Yeah, that's the beauty. How, of how could these people who have very minimal experience in a mindset in a mind site, half of us haven't even set foot on that, come right. up with a concept that might have some uh, stronger uh, sort of validation than a lot of the systems that have been out there for years? Okay, so now you you, you won the hackathon and you decided you're going to take it out of the product. Have, are you doing field tests now of it? We are. So uh, we spent the first few months really networking and trying to figure out, you know, is this a real problem? Would right. they take us seriously? Right. Is this type of technology suitable? Um, just really trying to get to the bottom of it um, because rather than spending time and energy on something where they might have said, listen, you're too small, it's not the right fit, uh, it's not a big enough problem. Um, so the first few months was largely, I guess, quantifying it and, and networking and speaking with this, uh, as many mining companies and understanding the real problem. And this is also, I think, we're being in Perth just mm. gives you a better position than probably any other city in the world for that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, 100% correct. So very fortunate that these people that we speak to are down the road. Right. The mine sites that we're uh, communicating with are a few hours flight away. Right. Um, it is our local opportunity. It's, that's what really excites us. So how big's the company now? The company, well, there's about three or four of us that right. work on it full time, but we consult uh, with probably over 10 uh, various uh, experts within their own field. Right. And that's right across uh, sort of from business development to marketing um, to the actual uh, geologists and engineers uh, that we sort of consult with. And then obviously the technical side of it, it's very much um, data analysis and right. um, sort of predictive analytics, uh, which is a very specialized field. And this has never been done in what we're trying to do is work out. Okay, sort so of part- let, let, but let, if you get this right, mm. Does uh, Newton Labs start to become a data analytics firm around other problems in resources? You know, do you take this basic insight and then start to build on that? That's a really good question. So yes, it's starting to happen as we speak. So 
because we like to really engage with the customers, we simply sit down uh, at a round table and just say, so here's some vibration analysis right. technology that we're developing. We're predominantly looking at uh, sort of oversize and what you call fragmentation analysis. So not just the big ones, but overall, what type of rocks and blasting have you got? Right. And it's almost as though a seed gets planted in these people's minds. Oh, and so wow. a few days later, they simply just ask you a question. I know, I know you focused on big rocks, but are you able to say monitor the operators right. um, for vibrations, for excessive vibrations? Yeah. Uh, are you able to look at road conditions? So mm -hmm. when the tray sort of shakes around too much. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these are things that we're not familiar with. So it takes the client to come to the sort of problem but, and then we try and apply it. But once they know that you can sense it yeah. and feed that back, they start to think in that framework. Exactly right. All we simply do is just say, listen, these are our capabilities. Right. Here's the exciting technology that's coming forward is this applicable or do you see any benefit? And, and do you see yourself having, uh, it's the last question, but when mm -hmm. it actually comes to going to the BHPs and the Rio Tintos and the Estradas and all these companies and, and you're a tiny little startup but you have a product, do you have the capacity to be able to sell into these great big businesses? Very good one. So what we've been able to do, First and foremost, probably not given the size that we are at the moment. Right. And that's just being brutally honest yeah. as a startup. You have to sort of have a reality check of what, what can you handle, what can you bite off, but more importantly, what can you promise the client? Because right. these are our neighbors and it's all about who you know and networking sure. in this community. But what we are doing is engaging with a multitude of other engineering uh, and contractual companies um, who are, have the capacity and the capability of either uh, designing the, the system, um, building the system, installing the system, maintaining it on site, um, helping with the analytics. Right. Uh, so for now, what we can- So you'll work with partners, basically. We have to. Yeah. Um, if, if we try and do this ourselves from this early on, um, I feel it, it's easier to work with the bigger people who have the experience and the likelihood. So we can stick to our domain, which, which largely seems around data analytics, yeah. Wow, Simon, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. And, and one thing Rahul said really stuck with me. He's not worried about your 3D's competitors. He, Asfan, and Richard are simply working as hard as they can to make a great product. The future is bright and long. That means there's time to do it right. There's even time to make mistakes if you're keeping your focus on what you're doing. And that's great advice for any startup. Now, if you'd like to see some photos of our guests or find links to their products and our advertisers, well, drop by our Tumblr, which is at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You're going to find also previous episodes. You're going to find articles. Lots more is on there. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Big thanks to series sponsors Braintree and API Days Australia. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Gormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work, and it is a lot of hard work, creating a podcast that is a joy to listen to. Thanks to Rahul Kadori, Asaf Khan, and Richard Bors, and to Simon Vincent for making the time to come on this show. And a big shout-out to Perth Space Cubed for giving Twista a nice room to interview Simon in. We will be back in a week with our big kickoff show for Series 4. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.